What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Man, uh, really exciting times. I mean, exciting is a word for it, right? Like, I uh, got, um, got some concerns with the uh, coronavirus, people working from home, um, new ways of working, um, impacting marginalized folks in different ways. So definitely expect for our content to shift a little bit. Um, so we're talking about and sharing tips on working from home and how to work from home. Um, dealing with managers, leading teams if you're working from home, and also dealing with managers who maybe have never had to manage you as you work from home. But all of that to say, uh, we continue to roll with the punches, y'all. And uh, look, it's Tuesday. We're having another conversation, real talk in a corporate world. We do this, right? Like We sit down with black and brown um, entrepreneurs, executives, uh, CEOs, right, who are also executives, but you know what I mean. Uh, at advocates, allies, public servants, elected officials. And look, today is no different. Like we have a great guest, Deborah Gore Mann. Deborah is the president and CEO of the Greenlighting Institute, a policy research organizing and leadership institute working for racial and economic justice. Woo! Justice. That's a heavy word in these diversity inclusion streets. And uh, here they are. And here we go. Deborah. Welcome to the show, ma'am. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. Thanks so much for inviting me. I, I too, am sitting in, you know, uh, troubling times in that I'm a decision maker on whether to work from home or whether to continue to bring folks into work. So uh, I, I hear you on your opening. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, to your point about being a decision maker, I'd love to talk about your journey, right? Like you've held a variety of different roles from investment banking to um, being in athletics to being a chief development officer, like I'd love to hear more about your path. Like, and as I, as living corporate, and I think as we as we all continue to have these conversations, we've been blessed to talk to people with really unique journeys, right? And it seems as if honestly, the people that are making the most impact have some of the most initially on the outset just curious paths to getting there. I'd love to hear more about just your story. Oh, absolutely. And I I think my journey is, um, I used to think that is, that it was unique. But then I, the more that I've shared it, the more I realize that there are just some pivotal moments that happen. And uh, so that happened to me. So in my journey, uh, you know, I'm uh, biracial. My mother is Japanese and my father is black and he was in the military. And I know for some folks, when you say the military, it means, you know, it's a significant sort of life experience to have a parent who is in the military. So he meets my mother in Japan. And so, um, you know, she comes to the United States. And so she was an immigrant. So I kind of speak that space. Um, and in our house was very much, you know, um, a bicultural home. I mean, mm. we, we ate as much Asian food or Japanese food as we ate soul food. So, yeah. you know, it was nothing for us to have, you know, um, sushi with uh, collard greens, so y'all to speak. Mixed it, y'all mixed it together? <laughs> yeah, totally. My mom what? just like, just did both, just did both. Mm. Um, but the one thing that was sort of emphasized in our house was education. Yeah. And equally from my father's side, you know, black household as the Asian side. I yes. did have a bit of a tiger mom, so people might know what that <laughs> means. Uh, so, I, you know, um, and uh, education was important. And so, you know, really kind of overachieved in that space. And here was one of these critical pivotal moments, right? So finishing high school, I'm literally the number two in my class. So I think they call it the salutorian. And my best friend was the number three person in the class. And um, I'm going to apply for colleges, and the story she gets, uh, and she's 
German but white, and the story I get when we compare notes are completely different. I'm told to go to a community college. Uh, my family can't afford to send me to college, but this would be a good stepping stone. I mean, it was a very positive conversation. And then I compare with my friend Lily, and she's like, she told me that I should apply to, you know, some of the best schools on the West Coast, but in particular, because we're, I'm originally from Seattle, Tacoma, the University of Washington or the University of Oregon, totally different story. And so, you know, we're sort of going, yeah, this is because you're black. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it is. But, you know, I didn't know. I hadn't gone to college. My sister, I had an older sister, and she went because through the PSAT, somebody offered her a full scholarship. So I thought that's how it happened. Well, lo and behold, her brother had gone to MIT. He comes home during that winter break, and he says, oh, no, you guys, you're number two, you're number three in the class. You guys are applying to Ivy Leagues. And we're like, what's an Ivy League school? (laughs) Because our counselor didn't tell us anything like that. And so I end up applying to um, Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, um, Caltech, uh, University of Michigan, right? Sort of high technical schools, high uh, academic schools. She applies to Yale, Harvard. Uh, We still apply to our local school, University of Washington. I also played basketball, so that's going to come in here. So I had some some athletic scholarships as well. um, And... uh, Ended up, uh, we got into, I want to say, nine out of ten of the wow. schools we applied to. Wow. She ends up going to Yale, and I end up going to Stanford. Okay. And and that in and of itself, so if you're in an Asian household, you know, for the daughters to leave the home is sort of bad daughter, not a, disobedient. Okay. So my mother was like, you're, you're not, she doesn't know Stanford from anything else. She's like, you're not going to California, you're a bad daughter. Wow. So my first courageous step was to say, I'm going to go to this school. Uh, it's in California because of my good friend's brother, who was like, this is one of the top schools in the country. You need to go. Right. So, so that's my first sort of, you know, accidental but intentional advice that I got. And then going to Stanford, you know, really kind of changed my life from there. Um, opened up a whole new dialogue, really started to understand my biracialness. Now we have a term, intersexuality. At the time, intersectionality was not necessarily as bright and clear, um, but really started to understand that. And, you know, had an engineering degree, um, worked at a tech company, a material science tech company when I graduated. Then I went back to graduate school, uh, back to Stanford, um, and got my MBA. And at that time, I got to be honest, you know, I was really motivated by money. Um, We were a lower middle class. You know, my dad was in the military. My mother worked as a domestic um, housekeeper. So I was cleaning houses, helping her clean houses from a very early age. So I can clean a mean bathroom now to this day. (laughs) To this day. (laughs) To this day. You know, you don't want me to come visit your house. (laughs) I might. (laughs) I need to clean this bathroom. (laughs) And um, so it was really kind of, you know, important for me to sort of maximize my value. So I went to Wall Street. You know, I went to work at an investment bank and even then realized, um, well, let me take a step back. Another circumstance that happened when I went to graduate school, I ended up being the only black female in that class. And this is, you know, 1987. Mm. So. But what happened, when I went to admissions, and I was like, how could I only be the black woman in my class? 
there was about 25 to 28 of us who had applied, but we all applied at very competitive. So Wharton, Harvard, you know, Princeton, or the top business schools, uh, Wharton, Northwestern, and the rest, the other 24 went to all the other schools. I was the only one that year that picked Stanford. (laughs) So here I'm in a class, you know, where I'm the only sort of black female voice. And it seemed like every class is like, well, what does Debbie think? What does Mm, Debbie think? You become the representative. I'm the representative. I'm like the sole rep. But I'm still identifying as biracial. I was like, why don't y'all care about my Japanese lineage? Mm. Um, But in any case, right, so land squarely in that. And what really helps me navigate that. Um, was that I played basketball and we would have these pickup games and I would, you know, be balling with the rest of the white guys who are now, you know, (laughs) running companies, running venture capital, but sports was my translator and my equalizer. And so I've always very much leaned into uh, sports vernacular and ability. And I think that has served me well, frankly, in my corporate leadership and everything to be able to talk sports. And I mean, like really talk sports. Um, has really helped. Now, what position and did you play? Not to cut you off. What position did you? Play? I was a, I was a point guard. I okay, so now, 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 so now, how would you, how would you characterize your game? Were you like a combo, or, or were you like a facilitator? No. Yeah, so I was definitely a floor general. I okay. didn't shoot as much, but de- uh, you know, a lot of assists. Okay. Played all forty minutes. Okay. You know, um, started as a freshman all four years. Wow. Last two years, team captain. Okay. So I think the leadership stuff kind of developed there. I uh, played a lot with men. I think um, that's a common thread with women who um, really sort of want to uh, elevate their game. You know, yeah. playing against people who are bigger, quicker, stronger sure. gets the game up there. Um, but, you know, so I'll make analogies. I was actually talking to a coalition person and, and you know, they have a very strong coalition. And I said, well, you know, here's my analogy. I'm like Kevin Durant coming to the Warriors after you guys won a couple. <laughs> <laughs> and that frames it, right? People yeah. like you beat it like, oh, yeah, like we're balling. But yeah. look, I got some skills and I can come and please, you know, let's just try to win some more championships. And so <laughs> sometimes those sports analogies, like, you know, people are like, oh, I get what you're You put you're it together, about. yeah. Yeah. With, and then you also don't sound, you know, it's pretty arrogant to say, like, I'm Kevin Durant. Like, I'm not Kevin Durant. <laughs> but people understand there's a skill set that you're bringing to, to the, the table. Game. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I tend to do that. So anyways, I go to Wall Street and that was yet another environment where I'm, you know, very few. Let's see. In that cohort, I was the only African-American woman in that cohort. Um, and then Wall Street is, you know, definitely... Uh, I, I always tell people um, until you make some money, you can walk away from money. So I was able to, you know, buy a home, help my family. You know, my father had passed, so I was able to help my mom um, with with her house. It had a portfolio of investments and and could, um, you know, really speak money and capital and understanding that. Um, but you know, after I made some money, I was like, wow, this is not very fulfilling. <laughs> this right? is, what have you done for me lately? What's your last transaction? Yeah. And, you know, you're constantly just pushing the rock up the hill. Mm. So at that point, then I, I um, stayed in the private sector mm. and I used my engineering degree with my finance. And in the Bay Area, there's a company called Bechtel, who is a large engineering infrastructure company, family owned, 
and they have an in-house boutique financial arm. And because I had engineering and I had finance, I went to work for that in-house boutique bank. And the beauty of that is um, it's a global company. So I had a passport and for, you know, five years I worked out of the country. Um, China was opening up in some of their enterprise zones a lot in Latin America, South America, and did these large, large structured finance in foreign currency. Um, So the multitasking, um, you know, the language, the currency was sort of complicated transactions and love that work, like love, love, love that work. Um, And then the big pivot was I got married and I had a child. Congratulations. Congratulations. (laughs) And and for women, that's a big deal. Even for the time, um, you know, I had worked on a big multi-billion dollar deal in Mexico and um, they weren't going to let me have maternity leave. They they didn't have maternity leave actually. Okay. Um. So we crafted. You know, it was I had accelerated some deals that I had done, so killed myself working a hundred hours so that I could take three to four months off. Wow. It yeah. wasn't. So when people talk about maternity leave and FMLA, and I was like, yes, where do I sign up? <laughs> this is some of the policy work, right? That yeah. now I'm all in because I lived through a time when when women didn't have that, no matter how big my deal was, no matter how, you know, I could be straight ball and it's like, there's no maternity leave. Um, And the big fear was that I wasn't going to come back to work, that I was going to love motherhood. And and I was like, maybe, like, I didn't know I had that child. So sure enough, I um, get my uh, four months off and really missed working so to the women who listen to your podcast you know i think that will resonate like either you know you the maternal part is like oh i love being at home and i and i love that too um but i really have this desire to keep working yeah and for me at that time then i couldn't just get on an airplane be gone two or three weeks because i'd come back and my daughter was you know talking or rolling over and i go and come home i was like no, 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 no. So um, I always, I always, I don't know how much space or people have talked to you about, you know, your network is your net worth. Yeah. So I, I leaned into my network and I said, look, y'all, I need a job in the United States. Let's keep it simple. In the United <laughs> States. But if it could be in California, all the better. Right. And different kinds of, you know, opportunities came in and it was, a you know, someone in my network that said, hey, you know, um, you went to Stanford twice and the athletic department's looking for a CFO. Mm. And I had done enough structured deals, right, that we had some development companies and I had served as a, uh, the financial officers in some dev codes, yeah. so, you know, and I said, oh, okay, let me interview. So, okay, so you'll love this act. Okay. So I go into this interview. The athletic director at the time was Ted Leland, who was probably one of the top five athletic directors in the country. Okay. The faculty athletic rep was Jerry Porras, and he had co-written the book uh, Built to Last, which was a bestseller with Jim Collins, who then wrote Good to Great. Yes. He's the faculty athletic rep. Wow. And then the provost is this, you know, this um, – black professor who's up and coming named Condi Rice. What? 
So I am interviewing. At the time, though, now come on now, we're in the 90s. At the time, I'm like, okay, athletic director sports, small field. Right, right. right? right. I, I've been doing global deals. My art, my deals were in the Wall Street Journal right. and the Financial <laughs> Times. I'm like, oh, isn't that quaint? He's an athletic director. <laughs> now, Jerry Porras, Jerry Porras, I'm like, okay, you kind of ball in. You're writing bestsellers. Right. You're Latin. First of all, you're a Latino male. Mm-hmm who's a tenured professor at Stanford. So I got a white male who went to community college and now is the athletic director at Stanford. I have a Latino male. And then this African-American professor, Russian studies. I was like, oh. So, you know, think about the diversity of that right (laughs) Right. there. Yeah. Think of the diversity. Black woman, Latino male, white man. And and they are going to be the nucleus. So, so they say, I, you know, talk the talk about, okay, this is how I would do the athletic department. And uh, as a CFO and how I'd run it. And they were like, this is great. We'd like to offer you the job. And I was like, great. What's the pay? It was like a 50% pay cut. And I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, no. (laughs) Remember, even when I was an undergrad, I was like, yeah, I got to make some money. (laughs) And I'm taking care of my family. And then at this point, I'm now the sandwiched. I'm taking care of both my, right, my my own family and then my mother. So we're kind right. of that sandwich gender right. generation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm like, thank you so much. I just, I, you know, here's my dilemma. I can't take the, the pay cut. It's too much of a pay cut. Yeah. And I thought it was done, right? So I'm like moving on. I'm interviewing other places. I almost went into consulting. <laughs> I get a call back from Ted okay. who said, we want you to interview one more person. I was like, uh, but, I, uh, and he said, no, just go on this one more interview. And I end up interviewing with the vice president of finance. And they're thinking that the athletic department reported to the position in the finance office. And so he interviews me and he says, look, I'm going to give you this job and this job. So when I joined Stanford, I held the position in the athletic department and I held a position in the university, which allowed them to basically double my salary and keep me whole. So I was just wow. like, wow, you wow. know, so another pivotal kind of, and that's, that's the transition, like the transition, I think a lot of people might have to take a pay cut or whatever, but I kind of feel like, well, my toolbox was pretty robust. Um, I had, I could speak the sports language. I had speak, been speaking the sports language as um, throughout, through my whole financial. So when it came to interviewing this completely different industry i was able to translate and transfer those skills and then you know got into um so that's my pivot into college sports and my real first exposure into sort of diversity of thought yeah uh you know equity what does that look like for women of color there was a real commitment to um title nine stanford was one of the first schools and i was that first generation that got the title, I literally, the, the scholarships came out in um, 81, so I'm dating myself now, and I was the first generation to get Title Title IX scholarship, full scholarship. Wow. So I've been in this space, right? I've been in this equity, um, justice, racial, um, it, just living it. Right. And so, you know, just fast forward, I did, you know, sort of run the gamut in athletics and when this opportunity at the Green Line Institute opened up, it is the single place where I have been able to unapologetically, openly talk about racial equity 
in all forms, and my work is to remove those barriers and to provide economic opportunity. So I'm still true to my message of, okay, we got to develop personal wealth, yeah. community wealth, yeah. um, and then remove these, um, the racial barriers. And it's, it's full stop, you know, redlining, um, uh, community development, um, all of the things that are, you know, affordable housing, healthcare, all of the intersections now. And I, and I just do it full throated. So, so there you go. There it is, Zach. There's the journey. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And you know what's interesting because you, you know you talk about dating yourself, but what I hear in that though is the fact you've lived this life and you're doing this work like beyond the buzzwords of today, right? So today when we talk about diversity and inclusion or we talk about equity uh, in a corporate context, where you know we we don't really mean uh, making people whole, driving for just like creating paths. Uh, to justice or um or like systemic change right we're not really talking about that like not really not not in the in the average diversity equity inclusion conversation we're typically talking about some type of training and some communications um and so what i'm really excited about as we kind of get into uh, this interview is like more about the work and where you see uh, the green lining institute going and to that end in a piece that you wrote for the green lining institute announcing your arrival to the organization, you said um, a portion of what you wrote, um, I'm going to read it here uh, quote, people would argue that a focus on the building of a nation through a specific lens of color and race only hinders progress they are the people who often claim to not see race and who replace the slogan black lives matter with all lives matter I'm not one of those people, so let me keep it 100 with you when I read this, right, and I recognize you work for the Green Lining Institute and I recognize that you, you know, you've been in places where you practically drove and you've strived for creating equity for your constituents or stakeholders or whoever the people that you're that you're serving are. Um, I just, I'm going to still say I still don't see a lot of black executives who boldly engage topics of race, like be it from a position of self-preservation or a lack of personal range. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think about Howard Bryant of ESPN and NPR. He was on the show a while back. Um, and he said to advocate for black people is to put your whole career in jeopardy. And so I'm just really curious, like, when did you make a decision to not only discuss black equity in these like theoretical frames, but leverage your own capital and labor to help solve for it and have, you know, in your career. Right. Have you had colleagues discourage you from pursuing this type of work? So I totally understand what Howard Bryant is saying when he says black people have to put their career in jeopardy. No doubt. Right. It's the judgment against Michael Jordan that he did no political advocacy. But now, you know, a generation later, like it's fine for LeBron James to do it, actually. And, you know, even Steph Curry or Steve Kerr. I mean, they're openly in this space now. So I think it is um, the times that you live in that affect it. I constantly had people who discouraged me if I wanted to, you know, have my career ascend or be eligible for large bonuses. Um, There was a bit of imposter syndrome that, you know, you had to perpetrate. Um, So the people usually who were um, discouraging of speaking boldly into race and gender and the intersectionality that I survive in were mostly white people yeah right 
so they were making it clear to me of the risk. Like, you can do it, Debbie. You can talk about this. You can talk about that. But I'm just going to tell you what may be the consequences of it. So I think I think there is some truth, for sure, to what Howard Bryant was saying. Uh, the flip side is, so when do you have the courage, then, to go ahead and put my career on the line? Like, you know, what yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I don't, you know, give an F. Here we go, um, <laughs> and and the and this is what's going to just trip you out of that. So the moments that I've been able to do that most boldly was um, when I was encouraged um, and had the support of um, mentors who, you know, uh, the Condi Rices or the Ted Leland's or. Um, I had I can name two or three people who are mentors who said, "Look, go ahead, speak your truth, and I got your back on this one." Um, so, there, for example, when I was at Stanford, I had been there maybe four or five years, you know, and and uh, I had done the first big Nike deal. They had never done a big Nike deal and got one of the largest campus deals ever pepsi at that time the soda wars are happening and your facilities so we negotiated that i had negotiated two very high profile coaches contracts wow. so my credibility on campus was pretty legit and um this new dean of the medical school really wanted to have um the orthopedics department sort of be a partner with the athletic department because think about the athletes, you know, at that time, Tiger Woods, John Elway, like we had some, they still have some very high profile athletes there. So I had met with the chief of orthopedics and I, and I was like, oh, it was a great meeting. Very white male. Very, very white. <laughs> great. So I'm code switching and doing all the things that I do to make sure that he's comfortable. Okay, okay. And uh, after that meeting, he goes back to the dean and says, you know, I think she's going to be a problem or something to that effect. So then two of our medical doctors who had been doing all of our surgeries, knees, shoulder, elbows, came back. And one who I trusted, uh, we had a very, uh, obviously, if you're dealing with young people's bodies and those families, mm-hmm. so I tended to be the person who talked to the family and, you know, said, hey, this is our expert. He came to me and he told me, he said, so this dean, they have some concerns about um, the relationship. And I said, this isn't about the relationship. This is about me. Right. I said, this is this white guy who's not comfortable. And I sat there and I was fuming hmm. and went to the athletic director and went to the faculty athletic rep. And they were like, oh, no, we're going all in. Hmm. Right. Yeah. But they had to. I I probably would not have had I not had their voices behind me. Yeah. And and so we did. We met with the dean and um, I asked some very, you know, pointed questions. You sure. know, where was this concern coming from? You know, uh, I had the faith of the the um, the coaches, the head coaches, and the faculty athletic rep, and you know, X, Y, and Z. And where was this voice coming from? And and he was just sort of, well, I kind of heard you. Did I say that? No, but you know, it was in. And so I was just like, this is. I think this is racial. Yeah. I think it's both racial and gender. I think yeah. I'm men with influence um this is important to your career that you sign this athletic department and you know and then it was immediately you know he was apologetic and that's yeah. not what i meant and and i was like that's you know that's fine that's fine I'm just telling you how you're presenting yourself and what that means to me and my career right 
but it you know I, I don't know that I would have stepped out on that branch on my own mm-hmm. you know I think mm-hmm. if I had just walked that I, I my career might have been at risk and sure. and um, but knowing that I had you know two very senior people say uh, we got you on this yeah. um, was important was important and and so the advice that I do tend to give now is that you know everybody a young professional mid-year professional I, I think everybody should have an advisory council yeah where you have somewhere between three and five people that you have literally asked to be a mentor who has some sort of credibility and clout who can advise you on when to make these very hard decisions. Um, I've had an advisory council ever since, you know, and I, it's changed depending on the industry that I'm in. And I tend to have three. I used to have five. And you want an odd number in case there's a tie, you know, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have one say yes and the other say no, you need that third one to say yes or no yeah. to break the tie. Um, but then that'll help you um, temper, you know, your career advice with the steps you need to take um, when when you have to fight the good fight. And somebody, and I know now that that you know I don't know where he is in his career, but I guarantee you he will never he'll think twice you know about oh am I doing this because I have some gender bias because right. I have some racial bias right. like he he had been comfortable in that space and he had done his thing and he probably had run over a bunch of black people right. and he finally ran into somebody who said this ain't right and then had other people sit in the room with me and say you're not right. So, so those moments are, you know, sort of life changing, um, but they're, they're, they're done with courage for sure. My voice was quivering, my knees were shaking and I was like, but I, but I'm, I'm going all in. I'm going all in on this one. And I bet you felt all the better for it after the conversation too. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it made the next conversation easier, right. you know, to tell once you do it, you realize that the house didn't fall in right, right. Uh, yeah. or that your career didn't implode. Right now, you know, had it imploded, maybe I had a different tech. But then, Oof. you know, now I'm able to sit in a room and say, well, you know, are you sure that's what you mean? You know, like I kind of hear and I feel like you have some bias here and, you know, and now I'm I'm that voice for the whole community. I'm like, look, right. you know. This you are racial. You are racial washing. You are equity washing right now. Wow. Uh, people of color and yeah. affordable housing. This is about segregation. Let's call it what it is. They don't want to put affordable housing on Bart Stars because in Lafayette, a lot of white people live there, and they they want to live in segregated communities. Come on. Mm. So I can just speak it now and say, you know, to policymakers or banks or corporations yeah. or city hall and say, look, I disaggregated this. We have disaggregated this. Here's the bias that still lives. What what are you going to do? And here's how we're going to help you do it. So we, we have a whole framework that we say, OK, this is how you dismantle it. And this is how we're going to build it back up. I, I think that work is just the work itself is so incredible. It's like because. You know, even if you just look from like a from like a historical perspective, right? So like, what black folks have had their the same rights on paper for like fifty four, fifty six years, um, and and so I think about the fact that one that's less than that's not even a whole life that's not even a whole mm-hmm. lifetime, right? But then on top of that, like because of that fact, really Gen X is like the first generation of people who were born into this country with all of their rights and really even millennials a lot of these people are myself included like 
first generation corporate professionals. And so I thought about that side a lot, like the fact that a lot of black and brown folks is their first time leaving being in these spaces. But I haven't thought about it until recently, Deborah, is that this for white people, this is their first time dealing with black people in these spaces. And when they go home and they talk to their colleagues or their older mentors, they don't really I mean, they're not they're not going to get a perspective that isn't within a context that is formalized uh, anti-blackness, right? You think about like, if I wasn't a first generation professional, I'll talk to my, my uncle, he could give me context on just working with in majority white spaces, he could do that. But if I was white and I'm dealing with you in this space and I go and I talk to my uncle, he's not gonna, he, he very well <laughs> likely is not gonna have like, uh, yeah. <laughs> anything to teach me or tell me about like, oh, well, this is how you need to be self-aware and this is how these cultures work. and. You know, so I just I just I find that really curious. And you you kind of you answered one of my questions. I want to I want to ask this one, though, because you you kind of you touched on a little bit is what does it look like right, to build relationships across the various types of circles that you have to engage? Right? I think about the fact that when you're talking about policy, and you're talking about shifting and creating systemic change like you have. I would imagine there's some grassroots folks that you have to engage and endear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then there's also corporate entities who influence the actual policies. Right. I would imagine you're talking to some billionaires, but then you're also having conversations with activists and you're also talking to folks in the government. Like, what does it look like to manage that wide array of philosophies, motivations and personalities? How does that practically show up? I do think there has to be this um, consistency in philosophy. Like you have to really be grounded in your values um, because once people start challenging you, right? So if you truly believe that there's systemic racism in not just the policy, but in the cultural uh, diatribe of pull yourself up from the bootstraps, poor people are are poor because they're lazy. Like that's a whole capitalistic trope. And if you want to really dismantle the conversation, then then you have to have clarity that that is what's happening because it is so easy to get on the you can make money if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. The Christian Protestant work ethic. Right. Look, that is a construct to keep the segregation hmm. as status quo. Yeah. So when you're, you know, in either the corporate office or even in the the capital, um, you you start to have this conversation about where where are your values. So hmm. if a person is leading with, um, I believe you can pull yourself up in the bootstraps. I know that they have complete, they have such a long way to go before they can even have a conversation about racial equity. Mm. That foundational conversation. So I start there. Right. I start there. You know, so let's say even, even now. So if you're a digital native and you've been sort of, you know, raised that you probably, you know, think, okay, uh, I have all these online tools and they're the analogs are not non-biased. Okay, let's just disaggregate that. Right now, there's more loans that are, let's just say your car loan, right? Yeah. Or, or your home loan. It used to be about uh, 4 to 5% done online. 
it's darn near 35% online now. Yeah. And that information shows there's so much racial bias. Black and brown people pay 100 to 200 basis points more. Their loan interests wow. are higher. They're, so the algorithm, which has been written by white men who are in that space, yes. the algorithm has bias. No, it's neutral. No, it's based on zip code. It's based on spending habits. It's based on, uh, you know, because now they have all this big data tracking you. All of that is racially biased because it's founded in this language of if you work hard, you get educated, then this you merit- deserve. Yeah, this idea of meritocracy, and so and that is the racial construct. So, so we are now having this conversation about okay, what does wealth mean? Okay, wealth. It's just, you know, most of we think, what's in my bank account? I have a house. Wealth is I have the freedom to take a vacation. I have the ability to take a week off if my family is sick. I have the ability to cover a bill. If it's, you know, a health bill, an automobile breakdown, a home thing, that is wealth. So if you say, and and people say, oh, yeah, everybody should have the right to do that. You should have the right to be able to visit family or you should have the right to be able. Okay, so then you say, what does that policy look like to allow us to do that? So I don't really actually have to talk race. I don't. I don't. I need to talk about a culture, uh, a narrative. Like we have to take command of a narrative, which is coming. Like this whole political race, this uh, presidential race, pivoted on South Carolina and black folk voting. Yeah. Like change the landscape. So yeah. there's a you, and for the first time, you know, Tennessee Coates testified with Incredible. Danny Glover around reparations. Yeah. Like people are willing to say, wait. You know, what, what is this? And we have video now of police abuse and, right. you know, and we're unpacking the criminal justice system. Like there's an opportunity for us to walk into this space, which at the end of the day will affect your corporate life yeah. and will allow you to show up authentically. And all the data shows that a business decision made with diverse voices in the room, diverse ethnicities in the room are going to get you better business decisions so i can even talk to you on if you just want to talk pure capitalism like hey this the system that you know you white boys built is breaking down so you at least got to admit you got to consider another system (laughs) like you got to figure you got to figure out just even from an economic basis that what we have now is not going to persist it's just it's not it's collapsing on itself and now, you know, we we have this and it might happen in a generation that we're going to um, create a new landscape of what wealth and economic opportunity looks like. I mean, you know, typically we do sound effects in the show, like right here. I just want to drop like a flex, like boom, sound man, you can put it in this, put it in there right here. I mean, it's just incredible. You're absolutely right. And. I'm really curious, like kind of continuing along the last piece that the last part that you said, um, you know, in January, you wrote <laughs> you wrote something um, called uh, the many reasons to impeach Trump. Right? The many the impeachment, many, yes, the many, not many. the three they landed yeah, on, not the couple, not the few, the many, <laughs> the many. Um, and you wrote for communities of color. Trump has long since violated our public trust. And we know that a multitude of possible articles were excluded. So, you know, we're in in an election year, right? Like if Trump is elected for a second term, how do you anticipate Trump's policies practically impacting the efforts of the Green Lining Institute's goals? 
Actually, the Trump administration has emboldened the political conversation. Uh, we are in more demand now because of the contrast. Before, mm. there wasn't as much contrast. It was everybody was kind of in the gray. Uh, you know, we were kind of all getting along. We got a black and, president. There's no more racism. And, right. You know, we had arrived. <laughs> and now the contrast is so stark mm. that, it, it, you know, everybody kind of knows this doesn't feel right and so it's like what does right feel like and we feel like we need to occupy that space of Mm. okay here is what you know uh, a racial equality looks like here 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 is what right feels like and let's let's redefine um because it's he's offering you a model he's this is what the model looks like I talk crazy, I uh, put down whoever I feel like putting down, Um, it always is racialized, I'm a model, look at me, I'm an economic model, and it's, understand, it is an economic model, he does not stand on any values, he does not stand on any religious, it's like transactional, here's how much, I just got a couple billion dollars from Israel, I just got a billion here, a billion there, very, Mm. that's the model, so, what do you offer in contrast to that economic model? Right. And so I get that. Okay. There's this hardcore 38, 40%. It's like, yes, I believe that economic model. Sure. And then there's the, okay, we want to be a kinder, gentler kind of the space that I feel like uh, Biden's kind of walking into. Mm-hmm. But at some point you're going to have to have a conversation about what is that what does wealth, what is community wealth, what does economic wealth look like? Because he's offering you a model. Well, and, I, and, you, you know, and it just happens to be this very racialized model. But man, we're comfortable with that. Let me just say, we're comfortable with that racialized right. model. And, and it's we have just, been, right? Yeah. And in the absence of it, I'm scared. Like, well, wait, wait, but I understand that one. I get I can be stuff. a poor white, yeah, I'm a poor white person and I'm voting against my own interests because I believe if I pull myself up in the bootstraps, I'm like, no, you've been disenfranchised. For multiple generations. And you're still voting for your guys. So I think that, you know, the contrast is what's allowing our work to actually like accelerate there. We have so much work that we cannot even get to. Like right before this meeting, we were triaging, which and and I was working with my health equity person, um, which health equity bills could we support with our limited amount of energy and resources that we have um, because we, we are prioritizing how much work there is to do there is just so much work to do yeah so you know in terms of framing what happens to our goals i think you know we we stay very we're okay we're solid in our goals the work has just been multiplied and amplified that's a blessing and you know what i'm hearing also and something that we don't discuss enough again when we talk about like really creating and driving for equity we're talking about like really shifting and engaging systems like a lot of times like these conversations they start and stop at individuals and like then we get lost in like the distraction of intentions and it's like okay you know and 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 if 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 biases are conscious or unconscious we don't talk about impact we don't talk about again like these models by which these things are really like placed in and how they drive inequity and um and disenfranchisement um so that's incredible um 
we're coming up close to the end of the interview. I want to give you a, a little bit of space to talk a, a little bit more about the Green Lining Institute, what you're excited about over the next, like, you know, let's say over the next year. And then I'd like to give you some space to like, just like any shout outs or parting words you got for us. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the next year, um, there is a deep conversation happening nationally about redressing segregation that if we continue to live in segregated communities uh, in that, you know, like what do they say on any given Sunday, we're the most segregated country in the, in the world. Uh, there's, there's a deep conversation about that and about community wealth. And I'm saying um, both on the, uh, in the academy where, you know, a lot of research is being done to the policymakers, um, to bankers, um, there's a there's a conversation about now how do we really address affordability, homelessness, um, because they're all intertwined. Like you can't have a conversation about affordable housing without talking about health equities yeah. and social determinants of health. And you can't talk about that without talking about access to broadband technology that's moving so quickly, but almost everything. I don't know about you, but I don't know the last time I went to a bank. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I, I do it all online. My bank is on my phone. And you're absolutely on your phone. Right? Yeah. And you know, when you just to that point, like I think Mm -hmm. about, so I have the privilege of having a decent paying job, right? So I don't have issues with like using my data. I have unlimited data. I don't have issues with my Wi Fi most of the time. Right. And if I do have issues, then I have the privilege of picking up a phone, demanding someone come and fix this. So I can get back to going to doing it. But when you talk about like this next, you talk about this next generation of work, and like we talk about workforce of the future, and we talk about um, this this like this digital age. Um, there's been there continue to be studies showing that black and brown communities, um, economically distressed communities, are going to be left out of this age right. because we don't mm-hmm. have the access to mm-hmm. enter right. Yeah, so we have technology equity in our and uh, in our shop, and um, one of our biggest campaigns right now is broadband for all, and then another big pillar for us is um, algorithm bias, and that cuts across not just financial institutions but medical bias in the algorithms that are, you know, based on research in cancer. Well, guess what? That research was done around you know middle class white families. So um, the next. You know, 12 months, I think this this conversation is is going to start to coalesce. I think there's there are going to be some common themes or how we can um, change the narrative on an economic uh, sort of wealth redefinition of wealth. I think that's really coming in the short term. I think the presidential outcome in November will also lay the ground for sort of that next level of work um, that's happening. So. Um, you know, 12 months, we, we're running hard for sure, grinding, uh, and then we'll see if, you know, heaven forbid, like you said, that Trump gets reelected or not, um, because that will require some activism. I yeah. think we're going to have to be that generation that, you know, really takes to the streets, you know, walks on the Capitol, boycotts. Um, because if nothing else, you know, you can imagine if we all decided one day to pull our money out of the banks. 
that's trillions of dollars that's trillions of dollars and so it we we might have the activism may have to become real in the next 12 18 months if trump is um re-elected if not i do think that the conversation um there's going to be some uh this still has a conversation about okay what does um affordability look like because the homelessness is not going away you know we're one of the wealthiest states and we we we're so troubled by it um so i think that the conversation will continue and we might as well grab hold of what we think um wealth looks like and like i said it's the freedom to do a lot of things um that you otherwise couldn't do call up your your cable man or your your repairman like you have the freedom to do yeah and and i actually think yeah yeah and i actually think that's gonna then build community you know in in that if if i know that my mom is taken care of or my dad has you know can retire or comfortably or my daughter who does not have the american dream of buying a house like that's not she's like what What definitely not in california no way no no that's not it's not even a part of the dream right she's like i would think about that she's more aspirational of maybe starting my own company or you know traveling globally and spiritually and i i was like wow because that reality is not there for her to say buy a home it's it's not aspirational because it's not achievable well when you think about like i i 100 hear you you, the reason i reacted when you said pull out the money from the banks it's like this is not like uh it's a wonderful life right like you know nobody's gonna be like well your money's at at ted's house at, at bill's house like no like the money like if you took if that was the type of protest if that happened like oh my gosh like yeah i mean we got to have you back on and just talk about like even yeah. like, just the concept of protest because anyway, you, you, this has been a profound yep. conversation, Deborah. Oh, thank excellent. you. So, no, excellent. no, thank you so so much, um, y'all. This has been living corporate. You know what we do? We're having intentional, authentic, transparent conversations every day. Um, again, I really want to emphasize what I really have enjoyed about this conversation. What I really want, I hope our listeners are grasping and understanding is that shifting and creating equity. Um, and really having authentic conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion has to involve engaging and tackling systems, y'all. If we're not talking about engaging systems, we're not doing the work, right? So I know a lot of us, there are people who listen to this show who are like diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants, and like there are people who listen in who are trying to figure out and trying to get the secret sauce on like this next generation of workforce of the future. Like y'all, if we're not willing to tackle and dismantle and or rebuild or sh- like really think about these systems that are in play. We're not making change, y'all. Um, look, you can check us out on uh, social media, uh, Living Corporate Underscore Pod on uh, Instagram at Living Corporate. And then look, if you just look, we're all over Al Gore's internet, right? For those of us who are blessed to have digital access, you just type in Living Corporate on Google, we'll pop up. But we have all the different domains, okay? So let me just rattle them mm-hmm. off real fast, okay? You've got livingcorporate.co. Livingcorporate.tv, livingcorporate.org, livingcorporate.net, livingcorporate.us. We have all the living corporates except livingcorporate.com, okay? But we have living-corporate. Please say the dash.com. All right, now we all over the place. And again, coming at y'all every week with this stuff. Um, today was a super dope conversation with uh, the new CEO, Deborah Gore Mann of the Greenlining Institute, a policy, research, organizing, and leadership institute working for racial and economic justice. Make sure y'all check out the information in the show notes. Till next time, y'all. Peace.
Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.